one day I just got really terrible um, abdominal cramps on my right side. At the same time, I actually had lost my cycles um, and just thought that was normal. But it turns out that, that I had a very large endometrial cyst. I had to go through a surgical procedure. It's called a laparoscopy. So it's a keyhole procedure where they went into the ovaries to remove the cyst. And then at the same time, after the surgery, they told me that they had found a lot of endometriomas, which are actually areas of extra tissue growth that was found outside of my uterus. After the surgery, my doctor said, well, we don't really have anything to manage this condition. By that stage, I was already a young doctor, so I knew and I had seen a lot of patients um, when I was doing my OBGYN rotation at the hospital, the most severe forms of women having endometriosis, needing to have their uterus removed and having really painful sex lives and that causes them to then suffer mentally and psychologically as well because they have difficulty with intimacy with their partner. So there's a whole host of things that potentially I could already kind of envision happen to me. That's Dr. Lorena Law, and you're listening to The Interested Podcast. I'm your host, Donna Edda. Interested is a result of my curiosity to explore more on our collective wellness wisdom. And that goes from physical to cognitive to emotional health to spirituality. This podcast is my attempt to bring nourishing conversations to help you live a higher quality, more fulfilling life. My guest this week is Dr. Lorena Law. She is on a mission to unlock the benefits of integrative medicine in women's health. In spite of being a qualified medical doctor, she realized the limitations of Western medicine when in her 20s, she was diagnosed with endometriosis, a common health condition that affects one in 10 women. She went on to pursue nutrition and functional medicine to help address her own health issues. That eventually led her to co-founding Anatta Wellbeing, a clinic that embraces holistic healing and functional medicine. In this conversation, Dr. Lorena shares for the first time her struggle with endometriosis and how she no longer suffers from it. She explains why unique and our biotypes affects how our hormones behave. Dr. Lorena believes that we should embrace the hormonal changes as a barometer of our health. Don't be spoon-fed about your health. Be proactive and be curious about who you are. I'm super excited to share this conversation with you. So without further ado, I give you Dr. Lorena Law. Can you share your story of endometriosis? Mm, yes, it's um, a really interesting condition and a lot of women don't realise that they have this condition and often it's underdiagnosed because it presents itself not really as a serious condition straight off the bat. Often women can have changes in their menstrual cycles and they can have s- such a spotting, for example, and they can also have quite a lot of um, menstrual-related pain, which often gets... Um, treat it symptomatically with painkillers and um, I remember as I went through that process um, my health practitioner at the time just said take some Panadol or take some Brufen and it'll be fine it's just that you're getting menstrual cramps don't worry about it so I thought that was normal so for me um, having a painful cycle every month and not being able to go to class or not being able to um, attend functions um, was a norm for me. How and, old were you when you diagnosed? Um, actually, I was diagnosed when I was 26. 
Um, but prior to that, actually from the age of 16, um, I actually had a lot of menstrual-related migraines as well, so headaches, um, a lot of fatigue, um, and also sleep problems, um, and a little bit of anxiety, which I put down to being an, you know type A personality <laughs> at school. So I kind of ignored all those symptoms, thinking that was just my personality or part of who, who, who I am. And so I would just take painkillers um and try to like have a hot water bottle and just get on with it or just manage this just manage yeah and and push through um so push through whatever it was that I had to do in my daily life uh so it wasn't really until I was in my uh intern year um so after graduating from medical school I was in my intern year and it was quite stressful because there was a lot of shift work involved and not being a very good sleeper, at the time I would pretty much stay up um, all night or if I had to go to sleep, I wouldn't really get restful deep sleep. So then the next day I would try and function with a lot of coffee and <laughs> as you do in an intern life. And um, it came to a point where one day I just got really terrible um, abdominal cramps on my right side. Um, and it and. At the same time, I actually had lost my cycles um, and just thought that was normal because, you know, as, a, as an intern, you're stressed, so losing your cycle, that's normal. So a lot of, you know, colleagues and friends also said, oh, that's fine, that's normal, <laughs> that's, that's okay. So I, I went through thinking, okay, everything will be fine, I'll just leave it and just focused on trying to get through the year. But it turns out that um, I had a scan and they were really worried um, that I had something called an acute abdomen. So because I was on, on the right side, it could be your ovaries, it could be appendix. So they weren't really sure and they sent me to hospital. So when I got to hospital, um, they did an ultrasound and said that I had a very large endometrial cyst. And they took my history and of course, um, this long-term history of menstrual pain and um, painful periods and heavy bleeding. Um, so the heavy bleeding was always constant as well. Um, they were heavy to the point of having clots. Um, and again, I thought that was normal. <laughs> so, so everything that I thought was normal was actually not normal. In the end, um, they, I had to go through um, a surgical procedure. It's called a laparoscopy. So it's a keyhole procedure where they went into the ovaries to remove the cyst. And then at the same time, after the surgery, they told me that they had found a lot of endometriomas, which are actually um, areas of um, extra tissue growth that was found outside of my uterus. And that was actually causing me all the pain that I was going through. Let's explain to the listeners what is actually endometriosis, what actually happens and why the pain is occurring. Yeah, so the condition, um, nobody really knows what um, or why, what's, why, why the condition occurs. But what happens is that the lining of the uterus generally should, um, on the first day of your menstrual cycle, um, as it builds up over the month, it should actually be discharged through menstruation. So that's our menstrual bleeding. But what happens is that that menstrual tissue in some women can actually go a, on the opposite direction. So it means that it goes up into the uterus and through the fallopian tubes in the reverse direction and goes outside the fallopian tubes. And those tissue can get deposited inside our abdomen. 
So and it's, have nowhere to go. And have nowhere else to go. And because um, it, it gets stuck there, it stays there. And because it's also still under the influence of your natural cycles, those tissues can actually grow and expand and contract. Um, and there is also a belief uh, in some scientists, they think that that tissue can be inflamed as well. So that's what can be contributing to a lot of the pain and discomfort um, that occurs. And so in your case, you had the surgery, and then what did you find out afterwards, and how did you choose to manage the condition? So I was, I was really shocked <laughs> that I had lived through all that pain um, for so many years, thinking that was normal for me. And after the surgery, um, my doctor said, well, we don't really have anything to manage this condition. It is a chronic recurring condition. So we also can't predict how serious it can come back as. And the main thing is that it can affect my fertility. So she recommended at the time that if I were really fixed on having a family, then I should start having a family <laughs> earlier <laughs> rather than later because um, the tissue deposits, when they recur, they can actually close up the fallopian tubes. They can cause inflammation. They can cause changes in the womb and the uterus. So even falling pregnant could be a problem. So by that stage, I was already a young doctor. So I knew and I had seen a lot of patients um, when I was doing my um, OBGYN rotation at the hospital um, the most severe forms of women having endometriosis, needing to have their uterus removed and having really painful um, um, sex lives. And that causes them to then suffer mentally and psychologically as well because they have difficulty with intimacy with their partners. So there's a whole host of things that potentially I could already kind of envision potentially could happen to me. So, um, and because there was no medication, the, the main thing was to try to control the cycle and make them regular. So I was actually put on the contraceptive pill. And although I wasn't taking it for contraception, I was given it because that was one of the only solutions that was available to regulate the cycles. So I started taking it in the hopes that, okay, things will be fine, I'll feel a lot better. And certainly, like in terms of pain symptoms and cycle regularity, it was it was it was good for um, a couple of months. Um, but what I found was during that time, my sleep got worse. Um, I gained ten pounds, and I was more anxious and more irritable, and and sort of my mood was more up and down than usual to the point where sometimes I would just cry for no reason. So I knew that the only change I had was um, going on the pill. And um, at the time also, I, my, my specialist at the time also said, you know, like Lorena, one of the reasons why you have been able to put up with so much pain is because you're regularly active. <laughs> so I was exercising. I knew that fitness was important for me and eating well was important too. And, you know, I was following the pyramid diet thinking, you know, why did this happen to me? I'm doing all the right things. <laughs> <clears throat> but so I continue with the fitness and exercise, but despite doing all those things, I was still gaining weight, I was still not sleeping, I was still feeling stressed. So in the end, I decided that um, I would just take myself off the contraceptive pill. And um, at the time, um, my specialist also said, you know, if you've taken it for a couple of months, then come off it and see what happens. So I did. And when I came off it, um, I just lost the weight. Um, I started to feel better, more energized. I still kept 
exercising and my cycles were still actually quite regular, um, but they were sometimes still quite sensitive to when I was feeling stressed. So that's when I learned that I needed to work on whatever else was causing me to feel stressed <clears throat> because my hormones were almost like a barometer for my health. And so I continued after that um, in search of what else, you know, what else could be causing it? What else can I do better? Um, what kind of diet should I be on? And at the time, I have to say, like, even now, nutrition medi education in medical school is very limited. So I had no training really in nutrition and a lot of what I was learning at the time was really self-education and my own research. But eventually I came across the Australian School of Nutrition and Environmental Medicine and it was a great eye-opener for me because I learned that for me the first time that the condition of endometriosis can be relieved by taking gluten out of my diet. <laughs> So there I was thinking, well, I know I don't have celiac disease or I don't believe I do, which is the autoimmune condition, which as doctors we're, we're taught to diagnose and, and treat. Um, but I didn't realize that there are also a proportion of people are, who are gluten sensitive that don't have the autoimmune condition. And that can cause a lot of gut dysbiosis. So that was a really aha moment for me. And, you know, my general diet was cereal and wheat bix with milk in the morning <laughs> because that was like what I was taught. The you know Aussie me? breakfast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I thought pasta was healthy. So I was like eating a lot of pasta regularly, not overeating, but, you know, just reasonable amounts, having um, a lot of um, balanced foods that I thought was healthy, but wasn't actually healthy for me. It was really quite toxic because... I realized that my bowel movements, sorry to be so blunt, but um, <laughs> the we gut is the really, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the, the gut, gut health was something I really started focusing on because um, I also accepted that, okay, well, you know, everyone has a different opinion about their bowel movements. But then I learned that actually if you're eating every day and you have gut bacteria in your gut all the time, you actually have to clear them. So making sure that my bowel movements were regular actually made a huge difference actually to my sleep. So cutting out gluten, removing it, going back to a more Asian-based diet um, for a period of time actually, probably a good two years. Um, and at the time it was difficult because there weren't as many gluten-free products around. So I had to really go back and look at cooking for myself and going to places to look for um, things that were low gluten. And I had moved to Hong Kong by then. So it was actually relatively easier for me to go back to, yeah, of a low gluten diet. And I found my um, gut health got better. Then I started looking at how do I start reducing my uh, anxiety and overthinking. So I started doing different types of meditation. Before we go into the meditation, I want to ask how long into the gluten-free diet until you saw results? Because I want the listeners to get a gauge of, you know, sometimes you try something two weeks into it and you think to yourself well there's no change so it's yeah, not working yeah, yeah so for me um I actually once I started cutting out the gluten and then um it was probably around about three months that I actually really started to feel wow I'm less inflamed um I have less fluid retention during my cycles and they were less painful 
um, but sometimes they were still quite irregular because um, for me, I think having stress was a really great component. But I was motivated because I started to see that the nutrition change had already made a difference to me physically. Then um, the next thing was my mind. So um, to be very honest, like from the time I was diagnosed to the time that I actually learned about nutrition was really probably another um, six or seven years. So in those six or seven years, I really didn't have a solution of cutting out the gluten. So I was still eating that same diet that I thought was healthy for that period of time. So definitely dairy was a huge influence apart from gluten too, because I'm quite lactose intolerant and didn't realize that. Cutting out those foods, um, it was difficult at first, but it, three months I started to see some changes. And slowly I um, went back to get ultrasound scans. Nothing was really showing, so that was a good sign. And I was just really going by the regularity of my cycles and really trying to work hard in managing that, exercising and eating more of the right foods. And um, I have to say that now I've been doing that for around about mm, more than 10 years. I went back just um, a few months ago to one of my gynecologists here and did the scan and she says you have no signs of endometriosis at all Um, in fact your ovaries are 10 years younger (laughs) than what she would have expected for my age how do you measure that yeah so she did an ultrasound and she also uh, measured a blood test called the um, anti-mullerian hormone uh, which gets um, which goes up um, through the stimulation of the pituitary gland to the ovaries. So it's a simple blood test. Um, and they have different ranges for different age groups. So depending on what your number is, they have a range of ages that you fall into. So if you Oh, that's really good news yeah. for you. I'm really happy to hear that. Yeah, thank you. So um, so let's talk about the meditation. Yes. How <laughs> okay. do you deal with the anxiety? Uh, I was doing a lot of reading around um, how to how to meditate and I have to admit I'm definitely not someone who can sit still like if I if someone told me five years ago oh you just have to sit still and meditate I would say then I'm not doing it (laughs) because I just can't do that but what I really found was actually my mind works better if I just focus on a particular word or a particular image So um, imagery and guided meditation was a really great way for me to get started. And so I would listen to um, guided meditation before bed, and I found it to be really helpful. Um, And I also knew a bit more at at that time about supplementation and nutraceuticals. So I had difficulty actually falling asleep. And I read in research that small doses of melatonin can be very helpful particularly if I'm also trying to um, learn a new habit, um, learn a new way of um, calming myself down at the end of the day rather than trying to think of, you know, for me, I was like, planning for the next day because <laughs> my schedules were so full. I was trying to do everything. <laughs> and so I would like be thinking, what do I need to do? What do I need to pack? How do I need to organize my day? <laughs> oh, did I forget about this? So there was a lot of mind chatter. So I'm that kind of person. <laughs> And so I actually started initially just guided meditation. And then I incorporated a little bit of melatonin just before bed. What was the dosage that you were taking? I was taking around um, less than five milligrams. 
Um, and I was actually taking it sublingually, which is actually quite um, an effective way of taking it. And so I found that I fell asleep straight away. And um, I stayed asleep and I did that consistently for a week. And after that, I thought, well, let's try it without the melatonin. Um, and slowly, I actually was able to use just the um, guided meditation to, to fall asleep. And so ever since then, I really learned the technique of not needing the guided meditation anymore and just having um, more of a mantra type of meditation, a specific word that I would repeat to myself so that my body would start to recognize that as a safe place to then relax and let go and then fall asleep. So going from having chronic insomnia to now being able to manage my sleep really well to me is just amazing testament to what nutritional medicine and what lifestyle medicine can really offer. That's, your story is really hopeful because for women out there in the same situation, it's going to give them some some tangible tools that they can explore. And I have to say this is my first time that I've ever shared this story um, openly. And I'm really grateful for this because I realized that without sharing my story, I think it's difficult for a lot of women to relate to what I'm trying to do for to help other women as well. And when they tell me all these symptoms that they suffer from, I really completely empathize with it. And so I've been through that process. And so for me, it's a real passion to to be able to tell my story and share that experience as well. So thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this. And I can definitely feel your passion and and your purpose. I know now your focus is on women's health mm. and hormones especially. And I can't tell you enough, these conversations are coming up among my peers. Women, good friends are telling me their stories that they think they're alone. So I really want to use this opportunity to dig into a couple of these issues that have come up and people are actually struggling to find an approach. So I'm going to start with the first one and it's migraines. A lot of my friends are now have in, having intense migraines to the point where they can go blind for maybe a few hours, up to 24 hours, seeing auras. Yes. Can you unpack that? What is happening in the body at that time and what kind of questions we should start asking to help ourselves heal? So I definitely also suffered from what you just described, which is called classical migraine, um, according to medical diagnosis. And um, at the time when I was actually so, sort of first started learning about this condition in medical school, I remember one of my professors actually saying that classical migraine is associated with a higher risk of having stroke. And I had that condition and I thought, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> then I started looking into, okay, what are the triggers? What are the things um, that can cause it? And Certainly, I was already suffering from this during even my high school years. So by that time, I had read about cutting out things like chocolate and cheeses and those types of foods um, and sort of trying to see whether or not my menstrual cycles were also triggering because I also read that hormones were a factor in it. So I did all those things and yet still I found it not to be working for me. And so in the end, I actually had to um, take a medication um, which is classified as an ergotamine. So what it does is that because migraine has to do with the spasming of the blood vessels in the brain. So that spasming can be triggered by stress. It can be triggered by fluctuations in hormone levels. 
and certain types of foods. And now we know that there is a chemical in foods um, called histamine. So this particular chemical is also a brain chemical. And so when it fluctuates and when it's too much, then it can actually cause a spasms in, in the blood vessels. And when that happens, there's actually a swelling around the brain and around these blood vessels. And so that actually causes that pain. So when the swelling disappears, then you get relief. So one of the ways that um, doctors prescribe or try to control the spasm is by giving um, ergotamine which actually stabilizes the spasming of these blood vessels. And sure enough, it did help. But what I found was that after taking it, <clears throat> I didn't really feel my I, I didn't really feel my brain was working very well. I, I wasn't able to focus and concentrate for at least a day or so afterwards. And so I thought, well, for me, that's potentially three days out of um, every month. Potentially. So I knew that even though I had managed my diet and everything, um, it still wasn't really quite there until eventually, again, at the same time, I read about gluten and lactose intolerance and dairy, and I've realized that I was intolerant these, to these foods. So it's not just things like chocolate or caffeine uh, or cheeses. It's actually anything that your body can react to. It could be healthy foods that you think you're eating. Um, so apart from gluten and dairy, it could be things like corn and soy. So, I mean, those, those are generally accepted as um, healthy foods. But what happens is that our gut flora can also change as a result of many different reasons. So when we have this change in our gut flora, it changes how the immune system in the gut reacts to food. And so what could be healthy for you could be toxic to somebody else. And that could be the reason why it's triggering their migraines. So definitely food intolerances and allergies are not recognized. And the reason is because it doesn't immediately trigger the migraine when you eat it. Often it's a delayed reaction. How long is the delay? It can be up to three days. Wow. Okay. What is the recommended method to find out which food is creating that trigger? Right, so really the gold standard is to look at uh, your food diary. Um, so if you're working with a nutritionist or a health practitioner, they'll actually get you to write down the foods that you eat for, say, a couple of days or a week. And then you'll pick up the foods that you're eating commonly because often the foods we're eating commonly can also be the source of the trigger. And so then once we've identified that, you eliminate that food for probably... Um, two to three months. And once you eliminate that, then you can actually observe whether or not the migraines actually improve. So if they improve, then the next question is, well, do we have to eliminate it for the rest of my life or can I incorporate it again? So then I often will question, okay, so what are the actual triggers that cause you not to tolerate these healthy foods? Because sometimes they're actually really healthy foods like eggs. For example, so is it an allergy that you really have to eliminate for? And most of the time for these delayed allergies, it's not permanent. There's something else that's happened to your gut flora, whether it's because you've had a series of antibiotics uh, in the past that's changed the diversity of your gut flora, and now your gut is more permeable. So that foods that you're eating that shouldn't get across your gut barrier are now entering into your bloodstream. So one of the things that I look into while people are eliminating their foods is also giving certain types of nutrients to heal the gut. 
So the nutrients I generally give will be things like amino acids like glutamine. And I will also look at whether or not there's any low-grade inflammation in their gut. So giving herbs like or plants like aloe vera and slippery elm tends to soothe the gut as well. And I also look at the whole digestive process. Are you chewing your food properly? Because digestion starts at the mouth, not at the stomach. So if people's habits are that they're eating and only chewing a few mouthfuls and swallowing their foods poorly digested, that's not going to help. So undigested food can also trigger food intolerances. So looking at the whole process of eating more mindfully and sometimes having to use digestive enzymes, checking out people's stomach acid, um, seeing if they actually have any signs of low stomach acid, so looking at their nails, their hair, their skin, doing an examination can give me actually some clues as to what's happening in their entire digestive process. So once we've worked on that, um, optimizing the gut and the digestion, then we start to reintroduce some of these foods one by one. Do you also use probiotic to help with the gut health? Yes, I do. And I do recommend um, probiotics in for people who really have symptoms that they're trying to alleviate. So sometimes it could be that they have had a course of antibiotics or they're about to embark on a course of antibiotics. And um, research is still changing about this all the time. In the past, we believe that you should then give it probiotics after antibiotics. Now they believe that you should give it concurrently. There are also specific probiotics that are really good for um, improving eczema, so skin allergies. So it depends on the situation. I still believe um, that once the symptoms are managed and alleviated, that we should look at trying to improve the diversity of the foods because that's what's going to establish our own gut flora because there's so many uh, species. There's over a thousand species of gut flora. (laughs) If you look at a list of probiotics, the maximum they have is probably 10. So, you know, we could be missing out if we're just relying on probiotics. Going back to also the time frame, for a patient to start healing the gut flora, how long do you think it'll take them to actually feel a difference in the migraines? I think if generally the, the gut is the main issue, then probably in about three months. You've got to really work hard in those three months. Um, and the reason is because migraines can also be influenced by menstrual cycles and hormone cycles. And hormones tend to take at least a minimum of three months for it to reestablish and reconnect and stabilize itself. So yes, I would say, and a lot of research also shows that anything that you do, um, it's a three month process. Minimum. What's your take on magnesium for this condition? So interesting that you bring this up because actually magnesium used to be uh, intravenous magnesium actually was one of the ways that doctors used before we had these new drugs to manage acute migraines. So we would actually give people um, magnesium into the veins. I don't always recommend that, but I definitely have some patients who, <clears throat> while they're sort of going through this elimination process, needing some support. So that's definitely an option. Um, you can take magnesium in different forms. You can definitely have it orally, topically. And I actually think that our current modern day lifestyle depletes magnesium in many ways. So I often see um, people who are chronically stressed um, or they're not eating enough green leafy vegetables in their diet or they're drinking lots of caffeine um, or they're on some type of medication that depletes magnesium. So when I look at the whole 
uh, combination of different stresses and different requirements and an increase in demand of their body for magnesium, there's definitely um, a link between having low levels of magnesium and stress and migraines. What is magnesium for? What does magnesium do in the body? And what? And I think there are different types of magnesiums out there on the shelf. So can you break that down? Yeah, so, so magnesium can be a whole new topic <laughs> on its own. Um, so magnesium is a mineral. And uh, it's a mineral that's really important because it actually activates over 300 different enzymes in our body. So enzymes are molecules that actually help us um, biochemically to make different types of um, uh, nutrients or different functions. They, they act on the cells. So it's often a nutrient that's inside our cells. Uh, so it's important for making energy. It's important for running the mitochondria, which is kind of like the battery of our cells. It's important in our liver because it actually helps us detox toxins. It's also important for our brains because it actually helps to bind to receptors that calm our nervous system. So the other thing also is that in the gut, it actually helps to regulate the gut motility. So often some patients or some of my patients will take magnesium salts um, to actually help with constipation. So apart from that, magnesium is also very highly concentrated in our heart and in our blood vessels. So it's important in terms of regulating our heart rhythm. And so we actually use different kinds of magnesium, particularly for heart health. Um, so yes, there, there are magnesium salts. That, so what that means is that that magnesium is attached to a salt molecule um, and our body is able to utilize that efficiently. And it's also very well absorbed as a salt molecule. So we're talking about things like magnesium citrates um, and magnesium uh, malates that are salts. Um, that's very good for muscle pain. That's very good for energy. Um, there's also magnesium attached to amino acids called magnesium glycinate. So glycine is an amino acid. <clears throat> it's very abundant actually in our liver. So it's used to detox as well. So it's one of the amino acids used for detoxification. So magnesium glycinate is also uh, retained in our body a lot longer than magnesium salts. So we often use that um, as a way of um, improving detoxification pathways. And also glycine is important in our brain because it helps to calm our brain as well. So it's a synergistic amino acid with magnesium. Would you use them both together or it's really based on the condition where you might just suggest one over another? Yes, yeah, so if someone has a lot of pain, has a lot of gut issues, then I probably go with magnesium citrate because it's easier for them to absorb and they're getting the benefit from that. And then I generally would suggest that if they are, um, if they've been taking that for a period of time, but they still ne need magnesium for sleep, for example, then I might suggest a mag magnesium glycinate for sleep um, and for relaxation. So it really does depend on what is the most important priority or health issue to address. And can we find magnesium in foods or in the environment? Yeah, so magnesium actually comes in a lot of green leafy vegetables. It comes in a lot of nuts and seeds. Um, and so I definitely think that there is a role for diet. Um, the only thing with diet is sometimes the symptoms can be so severe that the body is so depleted that the needs are so great that you do need a short-term supplementation, particularly because um, 
I, I love exercise and training. So for me, I think any kind of person who trains more than three days a week probably need more magnesium because it's very important for muscle contraction and relaxation and also for recovery. So I, I think that's at least something that you can't go wrong taking. The worst case scenario, if you take too much, is you get a bit of diarrhea. If that's the case, then you stop. Um, when we're looking for the supplement, is there a particular, a particular one that you would recommend or is there certain things that we should look out for? So I think if you're looking for uh, magnesium, it's important to actually look at the type of magnesium. So some types of magnesium like oxides, um, they're generally not really well absorbed into the body. Um, they, are, they mainly stay in the gut. So it could be useful if you're trying to alleviate constipation. But if you're looking for something that gets absorbed very well and you're trying to improve your um, nervous system, then definitely anything with a glycinate um, is very helpful because that tends to stay in your system for longer. So actually looking at what the magnesium is attached to is number one. Then the second thing is looking at the actual dose of magnesium because uh, a lot of people say, say come to me and say, oh, I take magnesium. Now look at the dose and it's really tiny. They probably need six times more <clears throat> than what they think they're actually taking, which is fine because often the bottle will say take one a day which is okay. So if you want to take more, you really need to consult someone because if they're needing to take six times more, then you want to make sure that not getting side effects from it as well. So titrating the dose of magnesium is something I often get my clients to do. Um, so it's taking the magnesium dose three times um, over the course of the day and seeing if they actually start to get any diarrhea. Then if they don't, then they stay on that dose until they start to improve in terms of their sleeve or their general muscle tension or their anxiety. Okay, great. And so are there fillers, ingredients that we should pay attention to so we don't get those ones? Yeah, so there are definitely things like excipients, so stearates, um, fillers, those things can actually um, take up the bulk of the capsule. So <laughs> you want to um, really get good quality products. Um, for me, I tend to like to use more professional base products, which means that they're only accessible by health practitioners because we know that the quality and the standard and the manufacturing process, um, it's almost as, it's just as strict as if you were making a, a drug. So I know that this is the exact dose that they're getting. And often um, in those professional products, they will tell me the elemental magnesium, which means that it's a magnesium on its own without the salt and without the amino acid. Um, because when it comes to magnesium, your body weight is important. And so I generally would like for most people who are exercising regularly to take at least 10 milligrams of elemental magnesium per kilogram of body weight per day. So that can really add up. Uh, if, and often if you're purchasing magnesium in stores, they may not have the elemental component. So I'm not really sure what, what they're getting. Right. Oh, that's really helpful to know, you know. Otherwise, you're just taking these supplements and not having the effect. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. So I often will see people taking it and they say, oh, I don't really feel any difference. And then I change them on to something that I know is going to give them that elemental level. And then they actually start to see the improvement. Oh, fantastic. Last question on the migraine. Um, a, a friend of mine is on this medication. I don't know if I can pronounce it properly. Sumatriptan Suma tri yeah. and Zomic. Zomic, yes. What are your thoughts on those? Does it work? Um, is this the right path to manage or, I don't know, like heal from the migraines? 
I, I, I'm not, I, I believe in nutritional medicine, but I also believe in our allopathic medicine because people do need that symptom relief. And migraines are really debilitating. Um, people can't go to work, they can't function. So it's, 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 it's great that we have these medicines to help alleviate those symptoms. But then if we want to look a little deeper and dig a little deeper, then we have to really look at what the foods are that we're eating because often it's under-recognized and often you don't know because you can't remember what you ate three days ago. And often it's accumulative as well because you're eating those foods on a regular basis, not knowing that this could be a trigger. And it's not a direct trigger necessarily to the brain all the time. It's sometimes it changes the gut flora. So these things then take time to build up and then it takes time to unwind as well. So I think I do have people who are my patients or clients and they're taking these medications. But what I have seen is that they don't stop the medication if they need it. They still have it. Uh, it's important to have that, but then they're making those changes at the same time. So they may find that they don't need the medication as often anymore. Yeah, apart from the price tag of these medications, <laughs> uh, what are the side effects for long-term use? Um, generally, sometimes you can get sort of a issue in terms of the migraines getting worse and worse, and then it's not so much the drug side effect, but even the medication may not be enough to control the symptoms. The very minimal side effects of these drugs, um, the worst would be an allergy reaction to it. Um, sometimes people do get a little bit, um, I wouldn't say really confused, but they can sometimes get a bit drowsy and that, that can be some of the side effects that occur with this medication. It's, it's not very common, so it's a fairly safe medication to have. Um, but the question is, it doesn't always treat the symptoms entirely, and it doesn't always stop the migraines from coming. So then there are other methods and other medications that doctors also give to prevent migraines. Um, and one of the medications is actually beta blockers or antihypertensives <laughs> as, as a trial um, to, to stop it from occurring. So then with those things, um, if you're using that for prevention, beta blockers can deplete things like melatonin and CoQ10 and magnesium, for example. Um, so with uh, for, fortunately, with the acute migraine medications, there isn't too much of a side effect profile. You've mentioned that women should embrace the hormonal changes as a barometer of their health. We are unique and our biotypes affect how our hormones behave. Yes. That is gold. And I really want you to help us break that down and understand and tell us about what are these biotypes. So the idea of biotype for me is something I've always felt very connected to because <clears throat> observing how different women respond to perimenopause, how, they, um, how their cycles behave, uh, how some women go through menopause without any symptoms at all, whereas some women are, it's very debilitating with hot flashes, waking up in the middle of the night, having mood swings, very being very angry and irritable, and or very, being very depressed and unmotivated, like look, observing just the wide spectrum of how these stages in a women's life cycle can impact on, on their health was just something I was, I've always been very curious. And so I came across... Um, this new science called ecogenetics. Um, so what that means is that um, since we discovered the human genome, we know that a lot of these genes are actually interacting with our environment. So what that means is that we have a genetic blueprint. We all have it. We have variations of that blueprint. So it's like a recipe book. 
So when that recipe book gets read, which is what happens when you eat certain foods, um, so certain nutrients in your in your diet, um, exercise, certain things or your thought patterns, all these things can influence the way that recipe is interpreted. So it means what comes out when you're making a dish or a cake or, or a muffin can taste very different. <laughs> so, Fascinating. So this area of um, ecogenetics has, uh, it's, it's mainly to focus on how the environment impacts on genes, but more so um, the bigger picture is epigenetics. So the genes that surround um, the DNA are influenced by what's around it. So the epigenetic um, area of science is growing. And a lot of this science is now being used to correlate to the ancient science of traditional Chinese medicine. So Chinese medicine observes the phenotypes, so they're observable traits. So your eye color, your hair color, your skin color, how many freckles you have, um, your height, and even your hormone levels are influenced by these biotypes or constitutions. Even by freckles? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that's why the influence of generations of observing these phenotypes can, can be seen on, and, and the changes in these phenotypes due to the environment can be observed in Chinese medicine. And they've actually, scientists have actually looked at correlating specific genes for different types of constitutions in Chinese medicine. So we have this phenotype and this genotype interaction going on. So this whole science of genomics, which is the genes, and then you've got the science of transcriptomics, which is transcribing that genetic recipe and blueprint. And then you've got the science of metabolomics, which is what happens at the chemical level, at the biological level, the changes that are occurring then, then expresses itself as you. So this whole area of new uh, science of genetics uh, and environment has led us to be able to observe how we can personalize different kinds of treatments because we actually have some of that science already based on the Chinese medicine um, phenotypes. It's so fascinating because it, it is so measurable, it is so tangible, and it takes a lot of the guesswork and the mystery out of our health conditions. Yeah, it does. Um, and I'm really excited about this because when I started learning this, I started actually using an additional lens when I'm actually seeing the pattern of problems that people have um, because it also is predictive in the sense that I know that this particular body type can have problems as they go through menopause or I can almost predict how they're going to react if they have a lot of stress and they're actually not eating enough food. Um, or I can see how this person can, you know, why does the person gain, why, was, why does one person gain weight when they're under stress and another person lose weight? Exactly. Can you quickly describe the different body types? The, the details is on your website. You have an ebook that I really recommend the listeners go and have a read. For this conversation, can you describe them? Yeah, so the easiest way for, to describe them is to classify them into three types. Um, there, there are many more than that, um, but the main three types is based on their body shape. And the reason is because um, 
when the body is being developed inside the womb, the fetus, um, there are different layers um, that are basically the three layers, the germ, what we call the germ layers. So we've got the ectoderm, the mesoderm, and the endoderm. So these three layers are influenced by hormone fluctuations in the mother. And so how, many, how much nutrients you get at that particular development of the layer will determine how you look. I like to look at things in a positive way. I look at the strengths of each body shape. So first we've got the ectoderm. So we call these body types ectomorphs. So these, um, the ectoderm layer is generally the layer that develops the nervous system. So the brain and the peripheral nervous system. So these types tend to be extremely logical um, and systematic, and they're very good at planning. And they also are very good at detecting any risk. So they're very risk averse. So it's great because we need these people um, because we need to plan ahead. We need to look at the future and look at what things could go wrong and have a method of steps to take that we can reach a goal. So these health types, they generally um, also have a very thin body. So if you look at them, they're like the ballerinas. They're very slender. Um, they tend to have joints and muscles that are not so easy to grow. So they tend to not hold on to a lot of energy or resources. So if they come under stress, they tend to lose a lot of weight, lose a lot of muscle mass, both, both muscle and body fat as well. So these types are all the types that we sometimes get jealous of. They're all the model-looking types, and everyone wants to be that particular type. Um, but they also have their own struggles because their digestive system is actually not as robust. They also tend to suffer from a lot of indigestion, poor gut health, um, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, food sensitivities. Um, and if they have a series of antibiotics that can really affect um, their gut flora overall. So these types of health types have some advantages, but they also have to look out for what they're putting into their diet. Um, and they also tend to dominate in terms of their stress from their mind. So they also have to do certain things to calm down their mind to improve their gut health. So these are the ectomorphs. So the second type are the mesomorphs. Now the mesomorphs or the mesoderm develops into your musculoskeletal system. So your bones, your muscles, um, your heart, your adrenal glands. So these are all the connective tissues that are very well developed in these types. So you can imagine that these types are gonna be your athletes. <laughs> so they're generally the specimens for <laughs> the athletic world. They build muscle very easily. Um, they tend to uh, like to move around a lot. So they're often very active people. Um, they like movement. Um, they, they don't really have a lot of problems in gaining muscle mass. Um, so they're very good with physical activities and sports. However, one of the problems that they can have is they can develop a lot of inflammation. So because of their movement mobility, they can develop inflammation in their joints and their muscles. Um, and inflammation chronically, um, acutely, it's a good thing. It stimulates growth, but chronically, um, it can cause a lot of issues like burnout. So if they're not careful, um, they can do too much and they can burn out. And so what happens is that they get extreme fatigue. Um, they lose their motivation. Um, they can start having a lot of immune system problems, a lot of chronic pain. Um, 
they can also have a lot of heart-related issues because the heart muscles can also be affected by inflammation. Um, so these people tend to have problems with that. Then you have the other third type, which is the endomorph. So the endomorph um, is the layer, or the endoderm is the layer that develops the internal organs. So the thyroid organs, the pancreas, the liver, the gut um, is part of the internal part of our body. So these endomorphic types have very robust endocrine systems and very robust guts. So these are often bigger, these people are often bigger built um, because they tend to also be able to put on muscle very easily. But at the same time, they put on fat very easily as well. So one of the things about these types is they are built to be very resilient. So they can actually take a lot of stress because they have so much resources in their bodies. Um, and their gut is very robust as well. In fact, they probably don't need to eat much. They will say, I don't really need to eat breakfast. I can actually fast and have no problems with that. And in fact, they're just doing what their body naturally wants to do. Um, because they're so good at actually um, retaining all the resources that they're, that they're getting. So if we had a famine, these would be the people who are still standing. <laughs> the ectomorphs and the mesomorphs may probably die off earlier, <laughs> but the endomorphs are the survivors. So they're very, very resilient. However, because they're so resilient, they often don't feel a lot of pain. Um, and they're also givers, so, so they tend to also do a lot of things for other people before they take care of themselves. So often by the time they have health problems, and these health problems can be things like diabetes, um, fatty liver, high cholesterol, high blood pressure. By the time they get these health problems and they're feeling the effects of it, it's often really advanced down the track. So they have to be quite aware um, of regularly doing a blood test to monitor where their metabolic health is at. Earlier on, you've mentioned, so with this new knowledge that it's allowing you to integrate ancient Chinese medicine with the modern medicine. Can you share some of the insights or new approaches that you are excited about using? So one of the things that... Um, I like to do with women's health particularly is look at what the um, health types are for each particular person uh, first because that way I can really target specific testing if they need it but also the timing of their diet and what they're doing because what I have really found is that we all despite our health types, these health types also have a specific rhythm of the body and that's to do with physiology. So we know this rhythm, it's called the circadian rhythm. So the sleep-wake cycle, which we all have. And interestingly enough, what I look at is sometimes people will say, well, you know, I like to have my biggest meal at the end of the day. But what happens is that if you're the endomorphic type and you're having a large meal, your digestive tract is so long that it's going to disrupt your bowel function and potentially your sleep because the meal is so large for them. So then shifting their meal um, to lunchtime as the largest meal actually can help with their gut health and their regularity and their sleep. So even just changing a little bit about when they are eating certain foods and how much they're eating at that time can help them in terms of calming them down, in terms of helping them sleep. 
And I've also found that with ectomorphs, because they're much more tolerant to good carbohydrates and their brains actually need a very fast source of fuel to keep it active, they actually have to eat regular meals, sometimes six meals a day in order for them to thrive. So sure, they can do the fasting as well, but for them to be really optimal, to do all the things that they want to do, to be really aligned with their passion, they need that energy for their brains. So there's a whole different spectrum of there's no one size fits all. Because if you try and get that person uh, who's an endomorph to eat so many meals, they're going to have a lot of gut issues. They're not going to be able to tolerate that and they'll get bloating. Whereas if you do the same thing in someone who's more ectomorphic and they're burning through that fuel all the time, they're going to be really energized by that. This is so amazing because it's just a matter of timing. This is before any supplements, any Anything. intervention, <laughs> yeah, right? And it can just change the way a person feels. How do you measure a person's body type? So the way I measure is just a tape measure. And so it sounds a little bit strange. And what does a tape measure do? But actually, the tape measure measures the ratios of your leg length to your torso length, your waist circumference to your neck circumference to your head circumference to your wrist circumference. So there are actually around 30 odd sites that I measure to be able to work out what this body type is. Um, so this comes from the science of anthropometry which is a very ancient science that the Egyptians and the Greek doctors have been using. And it has been modernized. So in Europe, it's actually uh, still an ongoing research into this science. So the measurements that we know often that we also use in allopathic medicine is the waist-hip ratio. So this is a very common ratio that we use to assess your risk of having metabolic syndrome or problems with diabetes and stroke and heart, heart disease. So it's used in... In, in our everyday medical field, um, but I've expanded it to incorporate other ratios so we can really understand the constitution. I love how you've said that, um, you know, this is about how to reverse engineer your health journey. By understanding our body types, what can we dig in and what insights do we know that we can start reverse engineering? I think what we will start to know is what are our uh, weaknesses. Um, so we, we, we can also know what our strengths are. And so we can focus our energies on focusing, like on attention on alleviating those weaknesses. So just to share, I'm a mesomorphic type. I'm very classical mesomorph. So I know for myself that if uh, I always say yes to everything. I'm always very excited. I'm the first <laughs> to put my hand up and do everything. I'm a doer. <laughs> so, But I also know that if I do too much and I start to feel swelling in my body or my muscles are aching and they're not being um, rested enough, it's going to cause me stress. So for me, that's when I know I need to stop and completely recover um, because that's just how my body likes to work out and recover. And then every year I actually measure my inflammatory levels in labs. So I know what that trend is over time. How do you measure so those levels? So it's a very simple blood test um, that you go and you take the blood and it's a marker called C-reactive protein. 
And so I track that over time and I like to see it at a very optimal level because the standard range is very wide, but I like to see it at a very narrow range of less than 0.5. So I know that if I'm tracking that every year over time and I, my inflammation is under control, then I know that what I'm doing in terms of my diet and lifestyle is consistent with my health type. How often do you want to get those blood work but, but done? Ten, uh, once a year okay. and then tracking it every year because you can actually see a pattern and a trend. So that's very helpful, particularly when it comes to hormones as well, because I know for me, my adrenal glands are extremely strong and robust. So I know that um, I wake up with a lot of energy, but I also fall into the risk of having adrenal insufficiency because I haven't taken that rest because our body types tend to just push on regardless of pain. We have very high pain tolerance. We have a lot of motivation. So we will push on regardless of any pain or discomfort. Until you crash. <laughs> Until we crash. And when we crash, it's a very bad crash. And so I have seen this in very similar health types as well. And um, I often sit there and <laughs> say to myself, yes, I understand. So often then they really need complete rest. So it's very difficult because I like to move. So complete rest is very difficult for me. And I know that it's a struggle for many as well but then I take that time to learn new things about myself so so that's a strategy that I use so you can really look at these measurements and look at and predict what your risks can be and to focus those energies on making sure that you don't fall into the uh, risks that you have so what are the common women's health issues that you come across with your patients yeah, so a lot of the times it will be menstrual cycle problems. So either they have spotting in their, in their cycles or they haven't had a cycle for months to years sometimes. Um, they can also have a lot of menstrual pain. They can also have a lot of food cravings and they can have sleep problems. They can be very um, moody, have mood swings from being teary to being extremely irritable and angry um, to the point where um, their partner is saying there's something really wrong with you, um, please go and see someone. <laughs> and then they recognize it in themselves and they don't want to be that way. Um, and they think that, you know, it's, it's normal, but it's not. Everyone goes through it. And, you know, what can we do in terms of our lifestyle to make it better? So, and of course, that goes hand in hand with fertility, um, trying to sort of fall pregnant and, um, yeah, to sort of conceive. So a whole spectrum of these types of issues. So when you see these cases, where what is your process of unpacking and investigating the cause of the condition? So I like to look at the whole health history. So they come in, they before they even see me, they fill in a very comprehensive form. So it goes through what their symptoms are, how long they've had it for, what other symptoms do they have apart from what they're coming to see me for, um, what medication they're taking, what supplements are they taking, what family history do they have, because that can give us a clue as to what they're risk, at high risk for, uh, what their diet is like, what they're eating for breakfast, lunch, dinner, do they have snacks, do they drink coffee, tea, do they drink alcohol, do they smoke, what time do they go to bed? Do they wake up refreshed? Do they exercise regularly? How often? What kind of exercise? Um, and how do they gain and lose weight? Um, what diets have they been on in the past? Um, how has it worked for them? And finally, what are their health goals? What do they want to achieve? 
So once I get all that information, I put it into a pattern and then I start to ask more questions to clarify things that I suspect could be the problem. So I might see a pattern of adrenal stress. Then I start asking more about what's happened in their work, what kind of job they have, what responsibilities they have at home. Do they have four children and they're also the, a lawyer at a, or a partner at a law firm and they're just chronically fatigued and they're drinking coffee and they don't want to... I really delve in more into that aspect because that would be a priority for them and it shows up as, as quite high. Um, then I might get them to fill in another questionnaire later on to gauge a severity of the condition. So it will calculate a number um, depending on what their symptoms are. So if it's a gut issue, it will give me a number, maybe sort of out of like 10 or above, then I know that it's quite severe and that's the issue that they have to address. So I use a lot of questionnaires because I use it as a benchmark of their baseline. And then after a couple of months, they get to redo the questionnaire to see where they're at now after their improvements. So this is kind of the approach that I use. It's a lot of questions. Early menopause. I have a friend who entered it in her 30s. You know, what can you share on that? Mm. The interesting thing about the hormones, particularly with um, menopause, is that a lot of the hormones can be made in from adrenal glands a lot of the sex hormones can be made there so taking care of stress and our adrenal health and then also realizing that um, our diets also contribute to some extent to that because remember it's not just sex hormones it's also growth hormones so even though the connection between um, the growth hormone and ovaries may not be uh, 100% we're still able to function healthily and so the only kind of risks that I would be aware of is whether or not their bone health is good. So I would be looking at um, checking for osteoporosis, for example, and also just having a um, benchmark of what their baseline hormone is and then tracking that year by year to see what it's looking like and to see whether it's optimal for them. Because a lot of these women don't necessarily need to have hormone therapies. They can actually do very well with different kinds of foods and herbs and phytonutrients. And, and that can really alleviate um, symptoms that they have. Right. So then you're really then looking at the long term. So you're tracking it on a year on basis. And it's not something to worry about if you, you've completed your family. Or, so if, if, it's, if it's not family that's an issue, then it really just comes down to your own personal health. What do you take on some of the medication? Because she sent me a couple. Um, Estrofem, yes. Ultragestin, yes. Caltrate, mm-hmm. and then she says that Evista is to prevent breast cancer. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I mean, it depends on that person's history as well. So one of the things that I really look into is personalizing hormone therapy. So a lot of the conventional doctors is pretty much one size fits all you take this dose and that's your dose um, for the rest of your life but what we have found is that different women will break down these hormones whether they're natural or synthetic or identical or not identical 
um, they, they have different effects on our body and they can also increase our requirements for nutrients such as B, vitamins, zinc, magnesium. And so we need to also measure these um, as time goes because we want to know whether or not they're being depleted. So what I do is I do blood testing, but I also combine it with saliva testing and sometimes urine testing to look at how these hormones are interacting with each other and how they're being broken down. And they can be given safely as long as we're monitoring it regularly because as our bodies change, as our growth hormones change, um, as our adrenal function changes over time, the ability of these hormones to interact with each other also change. So I would say at least once a year, get the hormones retested. At least once a year, look at testing for B12 and folate deficiencies. And the other thing about bone health is look at vitamin D as well. Because a lot of women actually don't, because vitamin D doesn't have any overt symptoms of deficiency. So you really want to get a baseline of where you're at right now. Look at where the optimal range is and see whether or not you actually need supplementation. Great. So it is not just, a, or again, not a one-size-fits-all hormone therapy and there a lot of things to look into yeah i mean she's on the right track okay it's yeah. just now monitoring whether or not it's effective for her whether the doses are actually correct for her symptoms and look measuring her vitamin d levels and getting a baseline of her bone health right now which you can simply do um through through an x-ray scan i think the next big struggle is the mental health yeah i think the sense of because you're not going through the cycle as other women are and also because it it's almost like a harbinger of end of life i actually don't look at not having cycles as a problem i think yes it's nice to have cycles but if we don't have a cycle then we have to really look at things like our sleep patterns um, are we moving enough? Do, are we getting deep sleep? You know, those are other markers that we can look at. How are our labs looking? You know, do we have a risk of getting um, inflammation? Do we have a risk of getting heart disease? What's the cholesterol level? And marking and using that yearly health checkup as a trend and looking at the levels as they change over time, um, but also looking at it at a very optimal level. So the way I look at blood testing is not just conventional yes or no. It's normal because often it's normal, but if you look at the population that it's being tested on and your average, that's not normal for you. So I like to look at it at a narrow range. And so that's one of the um, services that I provide is I take people's lab tests that they've done from their doctors and I put it into a software program. It gives me a narrow range of what's optimal for them. And then it tells me what kind of health issues that they have to look at. And then you tweak it to achieve those optimal scores, right? Yeah, that's right. Oh, brilliant. I want to quickly go on to the health goals that you mentioned because you wrote when the woman finally gets the energy and the health, what is she going to do with it? You know, that sense of health goals, that purpose is so important. And sometimes we just look at the carrot in front of us. Yeah, it's, it's this mentality we have today that we want everything now. We want all the changes to occur now. And when I deal with people with chronic issues, um, they didn't get there just now. This was evolving over time. And I think once um, I get people to a point where they're feeling energized, the purpose for me um, is to be able to get them also to look beyond just their own selves, and, but also to look at what is their gift in this lifetime? What is their purpose? How can we contribute to the world and to society and to our community? 
So starting to be able to look beyond just ourselves, um, I think it's really important because I think as human beings, we are built to be a part of a community, to be connected um, and to share and assist in any way that we can. So I feel that sometimes having so much technology isolates us. But at the same time, I feel that technology can help to enhance that if we utilize it properly. So instead of just interacting with our phones or our, um, <laughs> our, the internet and online, I think it's still important that there's that human aspect because no computer can take away that human experience and that human journey. And sometimes it's not about getting to a goal or a place. It's about the actual journey, the experience, the lessons that you learn as a process of that. And we're all here as students. And that's the one thing that I really want to share with people is don't be spoon fed about your health. Be proactive and go out there and be curious about who you are. Because only until you really understand what your true passion is and aligning that with your physical goals, with your mental health goals, with your spiritual goals, then you're going to really thrive in your life. And so that's kind of where my whole point of going into women's health from a physical perspective is to get to a point where there's also that spiritual component. Absolutely. So in closing, I have a couple of questions. What is the book that you have gifted the most or made the most impact on you? Wow, the book that's that I've gifted the most actually <laughs> well I have to say for because of women's health um, is a book written by um, a US based um, functional medicine doctor um, and it's called what you must know about women's hormones um, so I've given that to a lot of my patients to read because navigating that space can be so overwhelming, but having that book to refer to in very simple language, but also looking at it in a more broader perspective with nutrition, diet, testing, and supplements, it's a really great reference. And I still use it even to this day. What is the best lesson that you've learned from your parents or a mentor? What I have learned actually um, from a mentor is listen to your gut instinct. And what are your closing thoughts on wellness and how our listeners can live a more fulfilling and a high quality life? My message would be that we are at a very exciting time of wellness where we are discovering uh, how unique we all are. And it's an extremely powerful tool that we can use for our future generations. So I want us to be able to leave behind that wisdom and knowledge that we have really worked hard towards searching for and give that as a gift to the next generation so that we can really take care of each other and also the environment that we live in. Great. And I'd like to use this opportunity to tell people about your ebook. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so the ebook was inspired by this new idea of health types. And so I wanted to explain it um, in less than 20 pages, <laughs> all, all the science behind it. So you can actually download the ebook from my website, Ananta Wellbeing. So once you've read it, and any feedback and comments is welcome. So um, it's a lot of different sciences actually are on the sort of back end of creating this ebook. 
but um, to make it accessible to everyone, to open people's minds and bring this awareness, I just wanted to give it out there. Um, and if you're interested in actually learning what your particular health type is, then you can contact me directly. And where can people find you? So you can find me online on anantowellbeing.com. And you can also, if you are based in Hong Kong, you can find me at Life Clinic. Um, so I want to be able to reach out to everyone else internationally through my online platform. Great. Thank you so much, <laughs> Lorena, you. for your time today. Thank you, Donna. The show notes of this episode are on my website, www.interested.blog. And if you enjoy this podcast, share it with a friend. <laughs>